Bleh. <laughs> What's going on? It's the end of the year. I just want to quickly thank you all from the bottom of my heart for tuning in and watching and helping the channel to grow this year. It's been really, really great to spend time with you online, waxing poetic about all the things that we wax poetic here at the Fromus channel about. This segment actually concludes this part of the conversation with John Christ, which has slowly evolved into a continuous conversation as my special trusty guest co-host Ace Von Johnson and I continue to explore the incredible career of John Christ in Danzig. I want to feel confident saying that over the last three years, I feel like we have all slowly grown into Danzigologists as, we, as <laughs> we've all slowly... <laughs> We've all slowly grown into Danzigologists as we've learned about the illustrious. <coughs> all right, it was a stupid joke. It was a stupid joke. Anyway, whatever, whatever. I can't say it right. <clears throat> Maybe I'll leave that in. I'm definitely not going to leave that in. It's really stupid. One thing is for certain, if you are really into like music gear, if you're into guitars, if you're into amps, if you're into music related gear, things that have to do with guitars and amps, you are going to love this episode because Ace and John, they're talking about a bunch of guitar, gear, amp, things that I do not understand. But it's fun nonetheless to listen to him do it. This series has been brought to you by my Patreon and my YouTube memberships. Yes, this is the lifeblood that goes into the Promise channel. Basically what it is is a very large, vast archive of hours and hours of material that you cannot find anywhere on the YouTube show publicly and uh, are only available behind the wall. And also super important, please make sure that you follow John Christ on all of his social media accounts. Make sure that you are tapped into what this man is up to digitally because he's always doing stuff. You never know when John's going to do a string of dates and you want to be there front row and center when he is shredding all of those wonderful dancing classics. So make sure that you go to johnchrist.com. Make sure that you follow him on Instagram. Follow him on Twitter. Friendster. MySpace. And, you know, I'm not the only one with the Patreon. Mr. Ace Von Johnson, he has a Patreon as well. Make sure you go check that out. Links to both John Christ's stuff and Ace's stuff will be down in the description. I also very much want to thank John Christ for all of the time that he has afforded us thus far. He's so fantastic at telling these stories. He is an effortless flow, and it's just so wonderful to get to sit and listen. I know that Ace enjoys it as much as I do. And speaking of Ace, I also want to thank Ace for his time as well, for being a great co-host, for all the support that he lends. And it's just really great to have these guys on the show. One last thing, one last thing. Yes, I know, I know, I know. Shut the fuck up. We just want to watch the thing. I know, I know, I know. I've been working on this project. It's a documentary feature-length film that I've been editing for the last six months it's a very, very personal project. I don't know if you're familiar with the term gonzo, but it's me at my most gonzo. A gonzo self-portrait of a filmmaker, myself, struggling to hold on to a sense of creative identity while striving for artistic expression in the face of chaos, death, pandemic, and unemployment. Pure gonzo madness. But I wanted to let you know about it. It will be here available to watch on the channel. It is a full-length feature documentary. And it is literally everything that I embody and represent at my core. The tentative title is Blood Visions and Chaos Magic. The Kuyashi of Filmmaking. That's what I'm going with. Who knows if it'll stay. We got that along with a lot of other great stuff dropping in the new year. So make sure you keep your eyes peeled. Thank you again, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Without any further ado, Jeff, roll the interview. Um, And then, you know, thinking about like pulling out to an even bigger picture in terms of like that atmosphere I was referring to, like I see that Metallica at that time, because we just said that James Hadfield, he came in, he was Metallica were fans of Sam Hain. They had just come in to do he had come in to do backing vocals with you on 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 tracks and stuff and this is around the time of master of puppets had already come out 
and and justice for all was the next record that was about to come out and it's not it's not black album metallica yet it's that it's pre black album metallica but they're they're like they are sizzling at that moment at like something big is going to go down right like something big with them is going to go down and what i'm curious to know is does rick rubin see like a band like metallica and then turn and look at danzig and go like like we need to like push you into that like stratosphere as well. Like what can you speak on any of that or am I just grabbing for straws here? I, I can, but it's going to cost you a lot more. Okay. Uh, how about how many smiles will it cost me? Would you like smiles? Um. Well, let's see how far we get, but I, <laughs> you know what? I think this is what I want. I want you to tell show, me what you want. I want you to show me that rat. Are you serious? That rat's name is Orbison. I just <laughs> want you to tell you, yeah, Rat Orbison is his name. And do you want to know what's funny? In all honesty, I was just looking like while you were speaking, just in the way that I was 70% listening like Ace because I was actually looking up humane rat traps. <laughs> like, and I saw there's like a bucket and you could put a stick and then you put the peanut butter because yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to hurt the you can, rat. You can kill the rat. It's no, I don't just want the way to the world hurt. works. But as no, an I really don't. I don't know. It's bad. I don't. I don't eat. I don't kill anything. I don't even kill bugs, man. I'm like, I, I, kill I those. no, I don't kill anything, dude. I'm like, I'm like really against all all killing if I can help it. But uh, I respect that. I just don't. You know, it's like there's it's a pincher some, bug. There was a pincher bug in my bathroom the other day, and I was like, hell no, you're no. Done. I will kill anything, dude. <laughs> I, I put everything outside, even hornets. If a hornet comes in, I'll put it outside. I like. I really believe in that. Like uh, for me, it's like a karma thing. I don't know. I just can't. I just don't want to like ants. Like I, I it's like a, a weird neurosis of mine. I just don't want to kill anything. Ants. So, or ants are cool. What about uncles? You, you good with the uncles? I'm, I'm okay with uncles as well. Um, but I'll tell you what, I will, when I get off, I get off here, I will send in that picture threat. I will send you a picture of that rat when I catch him unharmed, unharmed. This is where you'll, you'll slide the image in here later on in editing. (laughs) Or I may just cut this all out. (laughs) I don't know yet. I don't know yet. We'll see. So at the time when Metallica came along, right, you'd, you'd said they're big Misfits fans, Sam Haney fans. It was a huge thing because when I was once I got into Sam Hain and we started working together and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff um, that that was a common topic uh, was, yeah, we know Metallica are fans of the Misfits. They're fans of Sam Hain. They're Glenn started Glenn and Erie started sending them T-shirts. They were printing shit up, sending it out to them. They started wearing it on stage. We started seeing it in magazines. Everybody got excited, blah, blah, blah. OK, then we start working with Rick Rubin. He's getting more into the picture um, and we're recording the record. We're starting to talk about gigs and performances and who, where are we going to fit? What's the stage show going to be like this and that, you know, um, it was still old school, old school at this point. Um, Now Glenn and Rick were starting to bond over professional wrestling, WWF pre WWE. Right. So they started going to stuff, the garden and places and hanging out. Um, so that's where they were kind of connecting on that level. So I'll never forget. We did a couple of shows at the Ritz and I know you want to talk about the very first Danzig show, but, (laughs) um, you know, it was Rick's idea to have Erie and I came on, come out on stage shirtless, soaked our heads in baby oil. And so when we head bang, we throw this spray and the light would catch it. You know, and that was the whole thing. And you it's never like a wrestling gimmick. And and Rick was really helpful. Wow. Watching our shows because he would say, you know, you guys are good, but you look like you're wandering around stage. <laughs> you know, he said, you'll go wander to a point, you'll headbang and people and get real intense. Then you'll kind of wander back. And uh, and I thought about what he said. And he's like, he said, I don't want you guys to do this, but watch ACDC. He said. Angus is all over the place, right? You know, Bon Scott is is singing, but he's he's fairly stationary, moves out a little bit. He said, but, you know, Malcolm and the bass player, they stay back at the Cavs. When they come up for vocals, they walk straight, and they go straight back. 
and everybody has a target when they're moving on stage. Mm. So he helped us. He helped me a lot with that. Pick your target. Don't wander there. Fucking run or stomp. Oh. Find a spot. Pick your person you're going to hit. Get there. And then do your thing and then fucking come home. You know, establish your territory. Where is it going to be? Are you going to be mic standing? Are you back by your amp? What are you going to be? You know, so when a lead vocal and a verse is there, boom, everybody gives Glenn room. When the chorus comes up, everybody hits the front of the stage. When the solo comes, everybody drops back. I hit center, you know, blah, blah, blah. I didn't know anything about any of that shit. You know? I mean, I was I was a little fucking cover band guy in Baltimore, right? Yeah. And a jazz snob. So it was like, okay. It was like boot camp. But it was, that that was a big part of it. So not only was Rick helping us in the recording process, but also in the performance part of it too. You know, he really wanted a thing and and because he could when we played it 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 had a unique sound. There was something novel, it had a power to it. And the fans that just they fucking went crazy when we played live. There was just, you know, the, the shock wave hit them and it made them move. They could not stand still. They wanted to get closer to it. And he saw that and he said, you guys are so freaking raw, man. You were just raw clay. We got a lot of work to do. Um, and he got really excellent engineers and people that work for him in the studio. They knew their shit. I don't know why I happened to be just smart enough to pay attention and to listen to what they were saying. Um, <clears throat> And they were patient with me because, like I said, I was just a kid. Uh, but I got it. And when I got it right, you heard it instantly. You know, boom, that's the one. That's what we're going with. And I'm like, I don't know. Let me do another. They're like, nope, that's it. Moving on. That was yeah. a big. Wow. Moving on. Because I had to be stopped because I would just fucking grind it out a million times. You were and perfectionist. You know what? Let me take a nap. I'll come back for a million and one. Yeah. Wasn't I didn't think I wasn't trying to be perfect. I was just trying to be good enough, right? Thank mom for that one. But anyway, another story. So so but as far as once you got the basic tones and the vibe of it, then it just became okay. Now we need to capture what the band is live in the studio. So mm -hmm. The thing is, at first, I was pissed that the guitar sounded thin and dry on the record and the snare drum was fucking distorted. And Glenn screamed everything the exact same way in every single song. That's how I felt at first. But then I said, well, wait a minute. We're a live band that records albums. We're not an album band that plays live. Yeah. Right? yeah that's what we went for so that was the attitude that i always took in to it and after the first record um we had met james and kirk they come through town we actually saw the cult opening up for them um uh, you know in the meadowlands and uh you know, we were like, man, we'd love to tour with you. We'd love to tour with you. So it was Rick Rubin who was there, who spoke to James and their tour manager. He knew Mention Bernstein in New York. They didn't mention Bernstein, weren't really interested in us. But it was James who said, nah, let's take him to the UK with us. And while we were, we had 14 dates in the UK, it was 88. Um, while we were in Belfast, the hotel we were staying at, the IRA bombed it two weeks before we got there. Wow. But when we did the gig, we came back. We were sitting in the hotel lobby. Uh, Tony Smith, the tour manager, comes running. No, it wasn't Tony Smith. It was... Uh, oh, Anyway, one of their managers came running. It wasn't mentioned Bernstein. It was a road guy. And says, hey, and justice for all, we just got the report. It hit number six on the album charts. Now MTV has to fucking play us. That's amazing. Wow. 
Yep. It's freaking crazy. So you guys were on the road right at that tipping point for them. I'm just getting started, Jeff. <laughs> Wait, I want to go back one sec, one sec. Yeah, okay, well, you I, had a question. I, my, my question as a guitar player, a gear nerd, and a fan, what amps were you using on one? I had heard someone said there was a soft tech in there and all kinds of marshals. Okay, no okay. They were they were tried out. Okay. Um, there were marshals, and until I blew it up, there was a boutique amp called a Bedrock. Okay. Did so, you have a did you have a diesel at one point later on? No, 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 no. fuck. People have been lying to me my whole life. So I had a Laney, <laughs> I had a Laney 100 AOR head. Yeah. With full gain switch, one of the really old ones. Yeah. And I had that. I had a Music Man head. Uh, I had a couple of 70s uh, Marshall cabinets. Um, I rented a bunch of shit. We had JMPs, mm. Marshall JMPs. We had the Bedrock. Uh, there was an old Fender in there somewhere. Um, but, you know, the other interesting story is that you, we did a few shows. Remember I said we did some shows with Slayer? The very first show we ever did with Slayer was at the Palladium in Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard. Mm. And that was the Riot show. You remember that? Uh, it was a bit before my time, but I know of it, yeah. That's right. Yeah, you're still in grade school then, probably. Um, yeah. So we were to go out and just do one show at the Palladium, uh, opening up for Slayer. And uh, two, two big things happened. We're flying out there. We still, we didn't even have any road cases yet. Whoa. So... We we just have a regular canvas cloth amalgamide hide or whatever naga hide cases, right? So my BC Rich and my Les Paul, boom, go on the plane. You ever stay at the Franklin Plaza Hotel, Ace? Yeah. Off of Franklin Boulevard. <laughs> I don't know if it's still there or not. It's, it, it's gone now, but it was a shithole. Jeff, infamous. Yeah. Really? Oh my God. I. Yep. I lived on Argyle at the top of top of Argyle for about six years, which is the street that uh, the Palladium was actually on at sunset. So I, that whole area was for years. This dog and I would just walk up and down and live. So Erie and I lived on Vista Del Mar. Yeah. Which is right off of Argyle. Yeah. We were, you, we were neighbors you know, in a different time frame. You California. I know that you're, you, you lived in California. So you're not a Calif you're not an Angelino per se, JC, but I know you are, I know you are ace, but it's just whenever I hear people who either live or f are from California, they start talking about like places, streets and directions. And it's like this and, restaurant. and, yeah. and restaurants and it's this vernacular that just like, and has nothing to do with, it's just like this weird, like vibe, like West coast vibe about like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you go over on, you know, Pico and blah, 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 blah. jump over the one eighteen into sun right. Valley. Yeah. Every Mexican time spot. it's like a thing, like the vernacular. It's so funny. Cause it's just, I'm sorry. Go on, go on. We're talking about the palladium. <laughs> so, it's funny. so we get to the hotel room at the Franklin Plaza and um, open up my guitar cases, the Les Paul, Set it up. It's fine. Open up the BC Rich. Oh, no. The neck is snapped in half. <sighs> oh, and it's time for a commercial break. And let me tell you something. This commercial break is a little bit different than our other commercial breaks. This commercial break is special. And let me tell you why. Something has changed. Shit. What the fuck? Is that really say? Oh, my God. It doesn't say the right thing in the thing. Son of a bitch. Actually, this works out to my advantage. I really thought I fixed that. I guess I did not. I got to fix it. Let me see if I can fix it right now. If you'll notice right now, I just made a little update. You see that little seven down at the bottom? It just became a six. You know why? Because we are knocking $10 off of the price of the From Us Riot stickers deal. That's right. Now you can get a thousand stickers for $69. That's seven, that's still seven cents per sticker. Just on the lower side, we're going to say it's six cents per sticker. That's six cents per sticker, man. I mean, you really cannot go wrong. $69 for a thousand stickers. What are you waiting for? 
Get in on this deal. Link is down in the description. Go to riotstickers.com backslash from us or go to the link down in the description and click on it. And you too can have a thousand stickers of your design for $69. We also have another special available from Riot Stickers. You can now get 200 three-inch die-cut stickers for $79. You know what a die-cut sticker is? It's not a square. It's not a circle. It's whatever the shape is of your thing. So if you have a weird amorphous shape that makes up your sticker, that's what the die-cut is. Those stickers will be cut to the exact specifications of your design, and you can get 200 of them for $79. That link is also down in the description. What, Sharpie Riot? Have you lost your mind? Have you lost your mind? These prices are insane. These prices are crazy Eddie level prices. If you know crazy Eddie, then you might be old. You might be older than me. You're probably way older than me. But for those of you in the know, Crazy Eddie. Crazy Eddie was crazy for a reason. Perhaps we should start calling him Crazy Sharpie Riot because these are crazy Sharpie deals. So please make sure to take advantage of said deals. And without further ado, future Jeff, roll the 62nd Riot Sticker commercial. Go, do it. And it's the day before the show. I only brought two guitars and my main guitar, um, especially because it's got 24 frets on it. So the high note of mother guitar lead is like a 24 fret bend type of thing. So it's it's not, I mean, you can do it on the Les Paul, but you got to bend. It's difficult. It. There's, you got to use two hands. On you got to get up about here. Right, right. And there's a way to do it. Um, you know, when I see you in person, I'll demo that. But uh, so we go to the show and um, one of the crew goes and talks to Kerry King and he agrees to let me borrow his Mockingbird, you know, for the show. And was, oh, it was a beautiful guitar. Fell in love with that guitar. And I can remember that when we started the show, Slayer fans were booing us. And they were throwing shit at us and they were mocking us. But about halfway through the show, I mean, we were just relentless. We just did not stop. We just, you know, we got in their face. We probably played everything like one and a half times faster than, than we oh, should. Boy. But it played them as a big round room. It's an old ballroom dance, hardwood floors. There's an upper deck when people, and it was just, it was nuts. Okay. Slayer fans were just freaking nuts. So, we we actually we really warmed them up. Um, didn't find out until went off stage that the promoters had oversold the show. So there were about 200, 200 kids that had tickets that could not get in the venue. Oh no! Standing out on Sunset Boulevard looking for something to smash, and they did. They found stuff. They were pulling street signs down. They threw it through the front window of the Palladium. The cops got called. The riot police came out. The helicopter, when we got on stage, we're walking through the parking lot. They rushed us out. And they were like, what is that? And they're like, those are the helicopters because they're fighting on Sunset because they have tickets and they can't get in. And there was a show called Entertainment Tonight. And my family back in Baltimore uh, when I called them the next day, they said, we saw the venue from the helicopters. You're, they did a piece on, they said, Slayer and Danzig, you know, there was a riot. 
out front, you know. So it was like, I was like, oh man, here we go. I'm on TV. I yep. made it. Yep, we're just getting started here. Really? So going fast forward to recording the album now. <clears throat> so my guitar is a BC Rich, B I C H R I C H. Model is a rich bitch, R-I-C-H-B-I-C-H, after Bernie Rico is the founder of the company. Factory is up in Victorville, California, the high desert. Again, uh, you know, 45, 50 miles from Los Angeles proper. Um, and uh, so they made everything by hand back then. Okay. So to get the thing repaired, it was going to take six months or whatever. Uh, so in the meantime, finally, Rick comes back again, ready to record the studio. So I'm going into Sam Ash. I'm going into Manny's guitars and all the 48th Street Music Row in Manhattan. It's, it's gone, long gone now. But uh, and Rick said, you know, get whatever you need, find what you want, uh, and then we'll we'll figure it out. Can't he wasn't going to buy me the whole store, but he said go in and see what you can do. So, you know, I I had uh, Lisa Sharkin. Um, she did a lot of work with Rick and um, Def Jam and all that. And I had her a whole day. I got there uh, late morning and I left well after dark. I played every guitar in the store and we narrowed it down to a couple. And I ended up uh, borrowing a Paul Reed Smith 10 top guitar with a wide, thin neck. Um, and the early Danzig rhythm tracks for a Paul Reed Smith guitar. Wow. So I had a Les Paul, but it sounded okay, but it didn't sound as good as the Paul Reed Smith. So I got it to Lisa Sharkin and she quickly ordered some PRS pickups, put them in that Les Paul and bam, it sounded good. So then I started using that one in the studio. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the bitch back until um, a few months later when we were going back to do overdubs and solos. So then... I said, well, screw it. Put some PRS pickups in the bitch, too. Wow. So I was able to finish the album with my main guitar, but now everything was these standard HFS Paul Reed Smith pickups. And when I was in the, the guitar store um, trying out guitars, it was just... Um, hang on a second. Oh, I over and over in every guitar, I was like... <laughs> you know you know play that every guitar in the store and then every single guitar you know and then and of course and mother was a big one because those that G and that A and that B, they had to be right, you know. And eventually I started um, playing guitars with my eyes closed because I didn't want to know what guitar I was playing. I didn't want to know what color it was. I didn't want to know if it was ugly or if it looked cool or if it looked like, you know, crap. I was just trying to hear it. And I don't think I ever did a blindfold, but we got close to it. And finally, you know, yeah, that was the one. I ended up with and I've been using those pickups pretty much ever since so um and when I got into the studio there was no judgment it was just like that's the guitar we're using that's a song okay and then it was just trying to get the amp to get the right response so that it sounded like it did in the rehearsal room the hardest challenge in rock and roll is you get into a rehearsal space you got a shock wave in there you got to right? recreate the sound gotta recreate it and it's next to impossible okay it's impossible to do it and to make it better that's even going beyond so recording albums is where you endeavor to go way past what is possible and then hope that the universal you tap into that source somewhere along the line and and the magic just starts to happen we call it happy mistakes happy right. and all that kind of stuff and you get in there because you got variables like engineers and microphones and rooms and and overtones and EQ, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, but it takes the skill of those engineers 
and assistant engineers and producers and everybody working together uh, for that magic to effect to effectively be captured has to be captured right they got to get it and it's all about the performance i you know i try to be about the tone no when you get into the studio it's about the feeling it's about stopping thinking just fucking feel it with everything you got lose you know eminem hit it on the money man you got to lose yourself in the music in the moment right <laughs> I, yes yes that's, that's what it is and that's what glenn was really good at it you know well I, I would watch him and i'd be like fuck all right i see what you're doing and um, so how would he so how does he warm up in that sort of scenario it's like you're good he's got to lay down his vocals now does he just does he just go from zero to a hundred in losing himself or is that He's, process. He's, he's got a routine, you know. I mean, he's got some teas and some drinks and this and that and some tracks that, you know, not too crazy, this and that, and play around with sounds and and um you know, once once he starts to get comfortable and if something's not working, he's really good at knowing, okay, it's not working. Oh, let's do something completely different. Hmm. You know, he doesn't like to grind away if it doesn't feel right. And that's right, because if it's not feeling right, then it's not right. Sure. You know? uh, and it's funny how it's like <laughs> the solution is you either need to record in your rehearsal studio or you need to rehearse in a record recording studio. To to uh, that's another way of solving that problem, which is obviously not practical at all. But I just think it's funny. It's like what's the what's the ultimate solution to everything you were just saying? Just record in your rehearsal studio or. Rehearse in, your, in a recording studio. And no, you know can't. what? Here it, is. Here it is. This is my quote of the day. Uh, there's, And it's probably not mine. I probably stole it from somebody else. Ace, you'll back me up on this. There's no such thing as perfection. You just run out of time and money. Oh, my God. Let, let me tell you something. As, as someone... Who I I you know I make micro budget feature length movies. That's what I do. That's what like I that's like my main thing that I love to. That's what I do. That's what I love doing. This YouTube thing is separate, whatever. And you know when you're in a mix post production, you know mixing for movies is obviously very different from mixing, you know music and albums. But it's we have a saying and it's that uh, a mix is never finished. It's only abandoned because you will just keep mix mixing and mixing and mixing. And then eventually there's either a deadline. There's a, something happens where it's like, OK, I can't work on this anymore. Yeah, we're done I have to walk away. So I totally I, get that. I, I mean, that's kind of anybody, though. I mean, like if you're a painter. Or you're yeah, a screenwriter, absolutely. you at some point have to shit or get off the pot, otherwise you're gonna keep nitpicking. And ultimately, um, that's what uh one of Rick Rubin's main roles was telling you when you're done. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know we're moving on, blah 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 blah. And um, and it's it's not a fun job to have. Sure. <laughs> Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it going to be successful? I don't know. But I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time, uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 
38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that $1.38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. (laughs) The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents. We, we've talked about Danzig One, I feel, and I want to land the airplane that is this conversation. Ace, if you have anything else that you want to add to the conversation as well, and then we will reconvene to discuss Danzig one, like after coming out and going into Danzig two, I, I, I'm already thinking about like a million things that I could ask. And there's just, there, there's just more and more keeps coming up. But what I want to ask you now in this moment, tell yeah. me about those first two shows. You, you talked about the, the, you talked about, you played about four, four or five shows with Slayer. And that was in the first cluster of shows for Danzig as a band. But while you were recording Danzig, you did two shows with Guar, one in the month of April and one in the month of May. One was at city gardens and one was at the Ritz. And what do you remember about playing with Guar? City gardens, right? Club may have been called officially Trent uh, City Gardens, but yeah, we knew it as Trenton City Gardens. Okay, okay. So, um, and the idea from the get go was like, yeah, we, you know what, we we need a live gig under our belt to just air it out and see, you know, see what happens, and um, and and tighten it up, um, because the Ritz was already in the planning. But we didn't want that to be our first show. Okay. So um, Glenn knew the promoter for City Gardens and um, and set it up. <laughs> I'll never forget. I, I invited all my friends and all my college roommates and everybody for the dorm. And they all convoyed up from Baltimore. It must have been like 30 people that were there just for me. <laughs> And uh, and the record company allowed us to rent gear, you know. Um, so here he had three Ampeg stacks, and I had three Marshall stacks, and we were so ungodly loud, it was it was incredible. Um, and I was I was taken aback by the club because, you know there was the dressing room was upstairs and there was no way to get to the stage from the dressing room. You had to go through the crowd to get to the stage. Right. And, uh, and it was just weird because I can remember security, like pushing people out of the way. And it was like, everybody in the audience was wearing black. (laughs) And I can remember just like protecting my guitars because I was carrying two guitars up there. And uh, it was just like this parting of the Black Sea as we made our way to the stage and got up there and played. And uh, and I I remember that it was just like, it was just like this intense sprint 
for an hour. You know, we were playing Danzig songs, but we did a bunch of uh, Sam Haynes songs. We probably did London Dungeon, you know, and Halloween yep. to walk the night. Uh, you Sam opened with Black Dream, which is Black shocking yep. to me. Black Dream. Um, man, we, uh, Erie and I used to call it Black Jeans <laughs> instead of Black Dream. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if we did stuff like Let the Day Begin or In you My did Gr Sam Hain. You did the song Sam Hain. Yeah, I remember we. <laughs> um yeah so and for me what was what was fun for me was while i was playing the songs was picking out the faces of my friends from baltimore that were there and watching them crowd surf and go which i knew they'd never done before you know some of these people are fairly straight you know college kids and all of a sudden i see them getting tossed <laughs> over a barricade and stuff i'm like holy crap but everybody was just going for it. They was just, and it was it was pure, unadulterated, adrenaline fueled rock and roll, man. I mean, you know, it was just on. And I can remember dropping picks because I was sweating so much, you know, and it just kept getting hotter and hotter and hotter, and. You know, if, if you ever breathe in through like a vaporizer, you know, it's that hot, humid air. I know exactly what you're talking about. I it do. was like that and there was no air moving in the whole place. And the stage was tucked in the back and, uh, and you know, you could smell the sweat from the crowd. That's what I remember. Was... Now, do you remember? Do you remember the smell of pina colada anywhere in the room? Did it smell like pina colada at all? Because Guar was like undulating, oozing sort of like the pina colada juices onto the stage, and you no, know, that I I could probably say yes um, for the Ritz show, okay, but not City Gardens because everything was stripped down in City Gardens. The, and I do remember watching them at the Ritz because I thought, man, this is very theatrical and very creative. Right, right. And these guys got props. I mean, not, not props, respect. I mean, stage props. You know, they had all kinds of stuff. And the music was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> you got these straight musicians up there playing and nobody gives a shit. Because they're just watching the spectacle of what's going on. I couldn't tell you a name of one of their songs. Do you know what Guar stands for? Uh, no. God, what an awful racket. Oh, there you go. So. Might have known that at one time. But I just remember watching them because they just seemed like they were having such a great time. You know, doing doing their whole thing, and uh, and it was like, yeah. And I think a few years later, we were on another big bill somewhere, maybe a festival in Europe or something. They were on it, you know. But uh, they they were very entertaining, and I was glad to see that that night at the Ritz. Um, up to that point, the only sparkling memory of that was that Deborah Harry was at the show. Cool. Oh wow! At the first dance, at the second dancing show, wow! There she was there. Yeah, uh, I thought that was kind of cool, um, and uh, and yeah, and it was a great crowd. And Guar got to put on their show in front of a big audience, you know, because the Ritz had a great floor. You know, it's two levels, and you come in off the street, and you got to go up a staircase on the yep. right, and it kind of comes out, and that there's, I think there are bars on each side, maybe one in the back. And then I you saw go the Buzzcocks at what used to be the Ritz and now is Webster Hall. Okay. So, but it was, it was neat. I mean, it, you know, probably not the best sounding place, but, um, you know, just, it was a great venue. So Erie and I went to see Dwight Yoakam there. Hmm. Great Wait, show. Where is Webster Hall now? 
Uh, that is on Third Avenue and Twelfth Street. It's either Eleventh or Twelfth Street. Okay, on the Lower East Side. Okay. There's a movie theater right on the corner, and before that used to also Webster Hall also had the Webster Hall, the studio, which shut down. But before it was Webster Hall, it was the Ritz, and the mm. Misfits played there, and Sam Hain yeah. played there, and lots of. I mean, it was a ha- that's a hallowed venue, of course, of course. And I didn't realize that that was the same um, location. I yeah, the same space. Yep. Okay. Yep. And it's amazing how like the only thing left down there is Irving Plaza. That's like the only place that's like yeah. really still standing that has a history that extended that that spans before punk rock and after like just every whatever all music rock modern rock history you know from the 60s all the way to now everything else is gone for the most part cafe was still there you know the places are still there but not but or, scrap bar sorry? scrap bar scrap bar down in the village yeah i mean i know of it i like i know bar. of it because of just hearing everybody's got some war story about it, but and I never tables went. Tables and uh, chairs and everything were made out of these old welded art type of stuff, you know. And it and it had like just a quote a punk rock bathroom end quote like CBGBs. <laughs> yeah. God, I I played CBs once and it was disgusting. <laughs> this bathroom. Um. That those first two shows, this was the set list for the City Gardens and the Rich Show. It was Sam Hain, Twist of Cain, Mother of Mercy, Am I Demon, London Dungeon, She Rides, Black Dream, End of Time, To Walk the Night, Halloween 2, Mother, The Hunter, Evil Thing, Horror Business, The Shift. Wow. The Shift. And Trouble and Not of This World. And then, and then on that rich show, instead of not of this world at the end, it's let the day begin. Oh, right. So that's pretty, I mean, what a gnarly set list, man. And it's like that set list is almost like a Sam Haynes set list. Sorry. It's fast down chopping in there. Fast. But let the day begin. And yeah, but the, and the way you played London Dungeon. Like those, like I used to always gravitate towards the early Danzig live shows because what you would, how you changed, how you transformed London Dungeon, you would find these um, for a lack of a better word. And maybe Ace can help me out with this, but you would find these little pockets to like go. It'd be like in the middle when Glenn takes a breath, you are yeah. going like this with your fingers. <laughs> it's so good. It's just like, you know what? I never got to do it on the records. So I would steal little (laughs) sequences in the live show. I mean, but it's like, again, for lack of better word, it's like you're playing. It's like you're two guitarists in one. You are the rhythm guy, but then you're also a lead guy and you're somehow doing it at the same time. I don't know how else to explain it. And it's like, I'm sitting there and I think you, when we spoke on the phone, did you, you said that that was not something that was really embraced within the bands, like the way that you sort of would your flirt, some of your flourishes on the older songs were not appreciated the way that you like to express them or something. Yeah. Well, that, that, and that was the thing too. And it's funny because um, I started doing that um uh, in Sam Hain before we even changed the name to Danzig. And (laughs) I'm sure he had a horrible first impression of me at the audition because London had given me some cassette tapes um, of the first couple of Sam Hain albums and, and some misfit stuff. And November Coming Fire, I remember listening to the songs and the mixes were really bad. You know, I mean, it's just like the drums had that kind of bongos in a closet type of punk rock drum sound, you know, you know, kind of real dead flat. And the guitars are all washed together. Uh, there's no separation, no definition. But there is some cool, there's some cool sounds, right? But they just weren't 
EQ'd and mixed, you know. Um, and uh, I didn't know how to mix it, right? But I just knew, you know. So the point is that listening to it as a guitar player, um, I would hear the guitar parts coming out. And so I said, well, there are like three or four guitar tracks going here. You know, what's the most important stuff for the audience to hear? Mm. So I would combine it into one part. Wow. And um, so when I went to the audition, the first one, you know, I was playing certain stuff. And Glenn goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm playing the part. And he goes, no, the part's this. And I said, yeah, I hear that, but this is also going on in there, too. And he's like, oh, just play that part. And then Rick was like, no, that's cool what he's doing. So um, so that became a thing where um, I would hear overdubs and we record overdubs in the studio. And I said, OK, um, I got to be able to do this live, reproduce it live. So Mother is a classic example, right? got three chords right and then when you go to the second part of the first verse well the, the main part just goes right that's all it does there's an overdub that goes So live, I had to do them both. So it's two parts. Wow. Together. You know, say how the gods kill was like this. Right? You go, okay, nice, minor thirds and all that. But when it came to the heavy part. There's a, there are a lot of different things going on, so I would, I would add, I would have that part in there. After I establish it twice, the listener gets the riff, right? And I know psychologically that once they've heard it, they got it. You can it's change your ear, yeah. Fill it out. Then I can do other stuff. So instead of just, so I got an E pivot pedal tone on the bottom, and then just G F sharp E D, right? Then I would add thirds and fifths on top. So it's filling up. It's filling up. So each time a chorus came around, I would add more and try and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And all out of one guitar. So it was just... And then by the time we got to the third album... Stuff like Godless, you know, um, just the beginning of that song was just crazy, you know, because it was so fast and Freaking amazing, though. Yeah, the thing I liked about the Lucifuge and uh, How the Gods Kill was just Lucifuge started with a dive bomb, <laughs> a guitar dive bomb. Who gets to do that to start a record? <laughs> Nobody, a dive bomb, and then perfect opener, perfect opener. Uh, and the third record starts with a drum fill, you know, and then there's just, you know, just crazy. Right? Well, in that song, uh, let's see. So, yeah. Right. G, B flat, E flat. Well, there are overdubs on there. It goes. Right. For Godless, right? Godless. Yeah. So we started live just playing everything together. So I'd be like, um, so, and so I'm actually adding harmonics and then playing the power chords while the harmonics are ringing, which does a couple of things. It covers up, it smooths out the whole line. 
because the ear hears these ringing tones. And when you pop them, the sound man can set the attack. So you go, bomb, bomb, and it goes, bomb, 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 right? And it's an echo. Underneath, you know, see this G string is still ringing. That's not how the song goes, but that's in there, right? Underneath, right? So, right. Um, there we go. And sometimes, I'm uh, sorry. But so the thing is, I would constantly fill it up by adding harmonics or little bends in between. Even She Rides was a lot of that, you know, because there's a lot of. Now, Rick Rubin and I worked extensively on getting just the right bends at just the right time, you know, because you have this. And we experimented around, do I want to do a double stop? Do I want to do a single note? Do I want to change positions? And so we just went back and forth. So and that's where my ear training came in because then I just became this human guitar loop machine. So I would just start looping and make one change here, one variation here. Next time I'd do tons of variations. Then I'd strip it down and go back to straight. Then one, two. And they would just sit there. Yes. Nope. Yes. No, fucking hate that. Nope. Oh, that was good. Yep, yep, yep. And then I would just try and recall those parts. And then gradually the consensus would come up, put up, and they're like, that's a part. That's a part. And that's how Glenn and I wrote all the songs after that. He would call me up and go, and then that's a song. We go in and lay it down. Oh, my God. Oh, we're going to talk all about that in the future. We're going to talk all about that. Listen, uh, right. I want to give Ace a moment here. Please, Ace, is there anything that you want to um, uh, add or did you have any comments or questions or anything that you that you had to say in this moment at all? Just um, Well, two, three things. First of all, John, thank please. you for your time. Second yes, of all, uh, I'm over here taking notes like mentally, like I literally muting this picking this my guitar up going like okay all right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right yeah, cool the droney g-string got it cool uh and um man I, I oh well first of all most importantly i had notes and i had all this stuff i was like i want to talk about this and i need to ask about this and you know the the fandom and you know just musician to musician takes over and i lost that piece of paper so <laughs> <laughs> for for next time for next Flying time we'll by be... the seat of my pants here and just happy to kind of be a virtual fly on the wall i could sit here and talk all night put on yeah. another cup of coffee and we'll just go for it uh i well, this this has been this has been again just absolutely wonderful to hear all of these incredible details from john christ and i just want to thank him as well as ace for once again joining me for a, another uh, very intensive, meticulous deep dive into his uh, incredible, illustrious musical career, we will be back. We have only made our way through the first Danzig scratching album. The surface right we're now, just scratching <laughs> the surface. So we're gonna keep scratching away, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again. See ya. Thanks. Peace and hair grease. Okay, hold on. Let me stop recording. Ooh, and that's it. We're in the outro phase. I was really hoping that John Christ would remember the smell of pina colada on the stage. We heard from, I think it was John of Doom. It was somebody who was at that first show who said that they remembered the smell of pina colada from Guar. And I just, the idea of filling up a glass with, uh, you know, uh, pina colada, Guar come and, and, and having a toast is just so, <laughs> could you just imagine? Could you just imagine the madness of it all? The madness of it all. You know, it's funny. I, I said on another show, I wanted to take my son to go see Kiss at the final show, not because I'm really a Kiss fan, and he most certainly has never 
seen or heard of Kiss really, but I just thought, what a great show to bring an, to an uh, bring an eight year old to, right? I, I I just thought in my head, what a great first show for an eight year old to go see Kiss. It's a spectacle, and I'm realizing now that the actual first show that he will probably go to will be Guar Joe Vasta JV. He was like, dude, you can't bring your eight year old son to a Guar show. How are you gonna explain? the uh cuttlefish junk the <laughs> the the herpes infested cuttlefish junk and it's just very simple man it's very simple you just you gotta simplify things for kids it's just a monster it's just a monster on the stage that's all you gotta say you don't have to worry about that stuff you know and maybe just maybe he'll be like yeah my dad he took me to see guar when i was eight years old and it was really fucking cool yeah that's what i'm hoping all right in any case, happy new year, happy holidays. We will see you 2024. Lots of stuff coming at you. Mwah, mwah, mwah. As always, peace and hair grease. And we will see you again. Whoopa!